Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I seize pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020 vision. Well, Dave, a difficult day yesterday. Uh, we got the news that our great teacher and mentor, Dr. Angelo Cotavilla, had died the night before. Uh, we were we were fortunate to be his first two PhD students and to benefit from his academic, professional, and personal wisdom and, and advice over, over many years. And uh, of course, we want to pay tribute to him uh, with this episode today. Yeah, uh, I thought of many different ways over the last 25 years that I, I hear the news of his passing. Uh, he had uh, fought through uh, two uh, heart transplants. Uh, it was on his third heart and uh, continued to just work hard, uh, work too hard. And uh, you know, when I got the news uh, from his son that uh, he was in a car accident uh, and had died, it just didn't seem like the way that he would go. But uh, I, I think that uh, he had lived, uh, and he would say this himself, uh, he had lived a, a much longer life than he thought he would have. And he was uh, fighting and writing and thinking and uh, being uh, Angelo Cotavilla right to the end. So, yeah, uh, but but very sad. Um, I think that uh, it's just it's it's one of the sad things about uh, his his life is that he's he's known by some, but he's he was so brilliant on on so many things, and uh, his wisdom uh, could be so used today. So I think it leaves it up to to us and others to try to carry those things that he's written in his books and, and the things that he shared with us as a teacher uh, to others, but uh, definitely a sad day. Yeah. You think about all the different ways that you might've come into contact with his readings, whether you were somebody who was in the intelligence community and had read his criticism of that community, sharp criticism from the seventies and eighties, especially, but really carrying forward through the war on terrorism, whether you knew him as, as somebody who just had an encyclopedic knowledge of the international scene going back hundreds of years and all the different groups and dynamics and stories and, and mores of, of various peoples, uh, whether you knew him as a, a teacher of, of the classics of political philosophy, somebody who had read deeply, especially in figures like a Thucydides or a Machiavelli. Uh, if you knew him as, as the public intellectual who wrote about the ruling class, the last decade or so and had quite a audience uh, on those fronts. So just so many different facets of, of his scholarship and popular writing. And it really all circled around some, some fundamental themes. And I think some of those are, are, are themes we're going to take up today, actually, as we do our, our discussion of Aristotle. I think it's very much in the spirit of, of Dr. Cotavilla's scholarship and, and public commentary uh, to think very carefully about regimes, right? The first book that we were involved in him writing as graduate students was the character of nations and did, did a little bit of 
research, right? You especially <laughs> on that front, but my name's in the book. So I, I got a little bit of credit um, right. for my one hour of effort and you got the same credit for your 200 hours. But anyway, that, that was, that was a book that was a very much Aristotelian kind of book, the character of nations, the Synodies kind of book. Uh, let's talk about regimes at, at a high level. And you know, I think that was maybe the heart of his project. If you want to think about the thing he cared most about and, and the American regime in particular, which of course led him into uh, all kinds of reflections on that in the last decade or so. Yeah. I'd been asked by the editors of, of basic books to, to write a, a 20th century Aristotle's politics. And, and that's what he set out to do by talking about the, the character of nations and on how that comes into being and what the interplay is uh, between the regime uh, and society and, and how regimes influence societies and societies in turn influence regimes. And that, that certainly is uh, front and center in Aristotle's politics discussion in, in book three, uh, how the two go hand in hand. Yeah, I, I think that uh, to, to capture um, Angelo Cotavilla, we couldn't have come up with a better uh, passage from Aristotle because it deals with citizenship. And I think of the many loves that uh, Dr. Cotavilla had, uh, one of his greatest loves was his love of his American citizenship. He had uh, come here from uh, Northern Italy as, as a 14-year-old, and he loved um, all of the great things uh, that the American regime had to offer for those uh, who were have-nots, like he and his mother. Uh, so uh, he was very much uh, uh, spurred on uh, to defend those things that were right and good and honest and true about the American regime and uh, be willing to advocate the hard decisions uh, when uh, those things and our nation uh, were under fire. So, yeah. So why don't we get into Aristotle's politics? So it's a yeah. good, good way to honor him. So, all right. So we're only going to cover uh, part one of, of book three. Aristotle introduces uh, book three by saying that he wants to talk about the essence and attributes of various kinds of government. To do that, you have to answer the primary question, what is a state? Two answers come into being when you ask, what is a state? Some people argue that a state does a certain act. The United States did X. Another group of people say that, well, it's not the state that does that, but it's the ruling class within that state. So it's the Biden administration that does X, Y, and Z. Aristotle's answer, though, is different. Uh, Aristotle's answer says that a state is composite, like any whole made up of many parts. These are the citizens who compose it. So to answer the question, what is a state, you have to turn to what it's made up of, and it's made up of citizens. So what does he have to say about citizens and what a citizen is, Matt? Yeah, well, a citizen has to do with other places. He talks about ruling and being ruled in turn. And so as he, as he works through that, he talks about two particular functions that, that citizens take up. And I think we've got very easy contemporary parallels for that. There's, there's a deliberative function that goes along with citizenship, and there's a uh, judicial function. And so it's to, to begin to introduce the point, it's not just that you're there in that same geographic space with other people. Uh, and it's not that you're somebody who has some connection to the government, but there's some real active involvement in governing and being governed that, that is involved for Aristotle in the essence of citizenship. And so I think this gives us a lot to talk about as we think about our contemporary scene. And again, as we think about the work of Dr. Cotavilla to really invigorate American citizenship 
in, in the last decade plus? Yeah, a citizen is a thinking officer. Um, a citizen is a officer who speaks, who uses words. A citizen is not a spectator. A citizen is one who acts. So to think and to speak and to act, that's what defines true citizenship. So if you were to point out who are American citizens today, we very well might define ourselves as citizens based upon the fact that, oh, we're in the United States, or, oh, I have a certain set of rights. But Aristotle, 2,500 years ago, are saying, in order to truly be a citizen, you have to do the work of a citizen. And that requires something of you. And holding office is important. And even democratic government requires an indefinite holding of that office. So if we're living within a democratic republic, there's a great burden and responsibility uh, that is upon us to actually live up to this comprehensive definition of a citizen. I think it's worth drawing the connection back to where we began at the beginning of book one, as he talks about why man is a political animal. And why is that? Because we have speech, because we're able to deliberate, because we're able to reflect upon questions of justice. And so if we're political animals, but we don't have the chance to do political things, we're really missing out on some essential part of our humanity. So, so citizenship is a natural extension of this understanding of human beings as political animals. So, so where a human being is a citizen of a given regime, that person is able to do that, that truly human thing of, of engaging in those conversations about the just and the unjust and try to move one's community in the direction of justice. And isn't it amazing that we live in an age that's called a democratic? We live in a modern age. Uh, we live in an age with great communication and, and openness and transparency. So the assumption would be that citizenship in our age would flourish. But the question asked by people like Dr. Cotavilla and others like Pierre Manent is, it's just, isn't it remarkable or ironic that in this age of enlightenment and democracy, citizens are not acting more but they're acting less. They're spectating more and doing less. They're watching others think and not thinking for themselves, or they're having others think for them. So they're not doing, by and large, the work of citizenship, uh, which is required in order to flourish. Yeah, and where, where they are doing something that maybe looks like that, it's, it's sending off a, a Twitter zinger, right, rather than actual deliberation. And so you feel like, well, I'll give you my two cents. I'll let you know what I think about that. And, and rather than really being involved in a process that would be refining a proposal or, or talking about important questions in a way that might lead to a change in policy, we just sort of let out our frustration. But for the most part, you know, the decision-making level is, is far above where the typical citizen is, is acting and engaging. Yeah, hence the famous quotes that we went over uh, last season of Tocqueville on what democratic despotism might look like, which for some is a pretty good definition of the, of the world today when he defines a citizenry today as an innumerable crowd of like and equal men who revolve on themselves without repose, procuring the small and vulgar pleasures with which they fill their souls. And above this crowd, an immense tutelary power is elevated. That's a very different uh, presentation of how politics uh, ought to work democratically, according to Aristotle, and how it oftentimes works uh, today. So moving forward, 
to applying this to American government and implications for American government today, how might we take Aristotle's definition of the state and definition of citizenship and point to a needed resurgence in areas of administration? Yeah, well, let's think about maybe the two pieces of that. So he talks about deliberation and he talks about judicial administration. And so what's it mean for us to deliberate on matters today? Well, you know, we recognize that the democracy that Aristotle is talking about is, is direct democracy, where individual citizens are gathering. Of course, we don't have that. Uh, we have representation. And in 2021, we have at least at the national level, very distant representation. And I would say distant in two ways, distant because it's a large, large number of people. So even in the House, you're talking about you know, 800,000 approximately people that are being represented by a single representative. And so it's hard to have any individual connection or contact with that person, uh, but also distant because we have the administrative state that's been built up over the last 100 years. And so it's a very difficult question to answer and say, well, if I were to change the people in office, you know, if, if I were to spirit a movement to really transform the house, let's say, where we have the most direct and immediate involvement in our government, what would follow from that? How much would things be different? Uh, how much would the budget change? How much would the regulatory schemes that affect my business and my life change? How much would the overall sense of, of the regime be transformed by that, by that change? And I think the answer we'd have to say is not very much. It's a pretty narrow range that defines the differences between one administration and another from the standpoint of, of the opportunity for reform bottom up. And so what that leads us to is a conclusion, number one, perhaps, that we need to do things to reform the administrative state, to open up room for more deliberation and for a greater connection between congressional action and actual policy on the ground. But also, I think it reminds us of the importance of local action. And I think it's one of the things I was speaking to a student yesterday. One of the things that's come out of our experience of the last year and a half with COVID, there's been a sense of a reinvigoration of, of local government, right? We, we have a sense that it matters. And we think about what it means to be in this state versus that state. And even sometimes at the community level, the city level, uh, we see some differences. And so we're able to see perhaps in a way we haven't recently, some of the benefits and some of the hazards perhaps of, of local self-government, but it might lead us back into the exercise of some deliberative function, at least, as we re-engage those lower levels of government. Yeah, and in the years that I've taught, and I'm sure it's been the case with you as well, Matt, when we have students who are interested in politics, uh, oftentimes their first inclination is to get to Washington, D.C. as quickly as possible. Yeah. So they can spend a summer there and uh, be around the important people. And and then soon enough, they realize that well, there's not much happening in Washington, D.C. There's more happening in Charlotte, North Carolina or Boise, Idaho, than, than what they could do in D.C., but we're drawn right to, to this Leviathan. We're drawn to the, the lights and, and the power and all the rest, uh, whereas true citizenship and even patriotism, if it's going to be renewed, may have to be renewed at that local level where you make commitments to people who are, you are in communion with uh, in day-to-day -day activities. Uh, I too had a student that I was speaking with yesterday who's about to write her senior thesis in high school on the question of, of what happened to American patriotism and is there any way to remedy 
the loss of American patriotism. Uh, and I pointed out what you just said, that that renewal, resurgence of patriotism has to come from commitment. It has to come from commitment that perhaps can only be built right now at the local level, uh, perhaps with national leadership that's suggesting that it ought to be built at the local level, but a renewed patriotism that is more Republican in nature than the one that we had in the 20th century that was based upon uh, the expansion of, of American empire uh, and our interests uh, and uh, our sharing of our way of life abroad. Yeah, and just to you know add the second piece of this, so we said deliberate, deliberation, but then also involvement in judicial decision-making. And again, that might seem really distant from our experience. Certainly, we think about Supreme Court cases. We just got announced this week that on December 1st, the Supreme Court will take up this very important case concerning abortion. And so that may lead to the overturning of Roe versus Wade. We'll see what, what comes from all that. But but that seems very, very far removed from the individual citizen. And that's, of course, one of the challenges of, of the, the judiciary having such a role in framing social policy that it's so far removed from individual citizen interaction. But what Aristotle has in mind primarily is not things we think about the Supreme Court doing, but, but jury trials and the role that citizens play in enforcing criminal law in particular, but civil law as well, and making those kind of decisions for their for their peers, for their local neighbors. And, you know, it's it's just something that I think we've just lost any concept of as a as a means of being engaged in our government, because look, we all want to avoid jury duty, right? <laughs> you get that postcard in the mail and you think, oh man, is there any way to get out of this? And you look at the dates and whatever the rules are, and everyone kind of tries to figure out the best way to maneuver around it. Um, but remember that one of the, the key things that was complained about at the time of the revolution, one of the intolerable acts that led to the first Continental Congress coming into being was a law that allowed for the removal of British officers and officials from Massachusetts to other colonies or to England for trials when they were being charged with a capital crime. And the Americans saw what this meant, right? That rather than being accountable to the local population, when they had killed somebody, perhaps think about the Boston massacre, for example, and now they're going to have a much more friendly audience, right? They can, they can stack the deck. And so the involvement at the time of the revolution of American citizens in jury trials was seen as a means of restraining government that had gone too far. And you think about some of the ways that uh, prosecutorial discretion is used today or plea bargaining, other these other means that kind of cut the people out of judicial process and, and therefore undercut our ability to rein in improper uses of that prosecutorial power. Well, we want to spend some time in particular speaking about uh, the legacy of Dr. Cotavilla and our own particular memories of, of our time working with him over the years. And of course, most people know him as, as a public intellectual. Uh, most of the tributes that we've seen so far are connecting to his recent writings on the ruling class or things of this sort. And uh, of course, those who are regular listeners to our podcast know that he was the our interview for the last episode of our second season, which, by the way, is now the most downloaded episode to date. So um, we're grateful to, to him and his reputation for drawing an audience to, to, to listen to that conversation. But I want to play a, a clip from that because it's really on point for the conversation we've just had. I think it might be a nice transition to other reflections on our 
uh, time working with Dr. Cotavilla over the last quarter century. This is from our discussion last May, where we were looking at an essay that he'd written called American Exodus about uh, the challenges of, of living in an increasingly oligarchic regime. You don't have to have an awfully good memory to, uh, to realize that the things that many of the things that we are told today are right, indeed the essence of rightness, uh, were in a few, few years back considered wrong in the essence of wrongness. For example, the, the, uh, uh, the notion that uh, one could, uh, that a man could become a woman, a woman could become a man simply by, uh, by wishing. I mean, these, are, these are not small things. And uh, perhaps the most um, compelling thing about all of them is that uh, we, the people, have had no choice in the matter. We are supposed to live under laws made by elected uh, representatives, uh, but none of these things have been forced upon us by law. Uh, but there they are. And so that raises the question, what are ordinary people to, to, to do about essentially a revolution in, in their lives, uh, not uh, nothing theoretical, but they're practical in, in how they live, revolution and what they think is good or, or bad, uh, uh, what they have to do about it, uh, because they cannot do anything apparently about it by exercising the vote. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really interesting here when you listen back to that clip in May, and this was a big theme uh, for Dr. Cotavilla, that in order for us to truly live up to the principles of the American regime, we have to be a deliberative uh, agent uh, by consenting to the laws that are passed, by paying attention to the laws that are passed. But if that lawmaking ability is taken out of our hands, then uh, are we no longer citizens anymore? Uh, and hence that this movement, he suggests, moving from democracy to oligarchy, where it's the few who actually have taken power out of our hands, the ruling class who rule, and, and we just follow what they say. And hence the changes that have occurred over 50 years on things that we wouldn't have wanted, but we'd had no power uh, over th those decisions. They put them into place, whether that was through the Supreme Court uh, who, or through various acts of agencies of the administrative state. Uh, but that main lawmaking uh, road toward change has not been the pathway in which change has been imposed upon us. Now, we've seen an increasing effort, not just to nationalize power, but in some ways to internationalize power. Yesterday was the speeches of the UN and um, President Biden, among others, spoke there. Um, what did you make of his remarks in this context? Well, I think what Dr. Cotterville would do is he'd look at the language of President Biden's speech and, and he'd see errors over and over and over again in the speech because the words that are coming out of President Biden's mouth don't relate to reality. So I'll give you a couple examples of that. Our collective future will hinge on our ability to recognize our common humanity and to act together. This is a dreamlike Alice in Wonderland language collective futures, collective humanities, common humanities. That's, that's not the way that the world works. The world is made up of different people. Those people associate with one another in different partnerships. Those partnerships don't always have the same end in mind. What is good for us 
may be something bad for another. Our good is not always something another wants. Uh, hence, you have to have your eyes open to the way that the world works, and you have to have a clear sense as to what your individual mission as a nation state is. But to use a language where you just assume a commonality, you assume, assume a collectivism that isn't there, is to repeat the errors of the 20th century when we had so many statesmen uh, doing just that. And it took the de Gaulle's, it took the Churchill's, it, it took the Reagan's to see international politics as it actually worked rather than actually how, as to how we wanted it uh, to work. And I think that there's one thing that I would love more than anything else for anyone who's listening to this show, go and pick up one of Angelo Cotavilla's books and read it. Read the words, read how he describes war, read how he describes international politics, uh, how statesmen act. Actually take a look at the language and read through it and see that it's filled with axioms. It's filled with logic. It's filled with uh, relating in common sense terms to the way that the world works. You may not like that the world works that way. That was one of the great things about Dr. Cotaville. He, he didn't try to dream up a world that wasn't. He had to work with the world that was, uh, both as an advocate uh, for certain policies, but in his own personal life. He, he, reality was front and center in, in the Cotevillian universe. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things we wanted to talk about in, in, in our remaining time is Dr. Cotaville as a teacher and a mentor, because as I said at the beginning of the show, we had the privilege of being his first two PhD students. And I think back to uh, the first class that I had with him was a small group of students. We were studying Thucydides and Machiavelli, and it was just a careful read through the texts. Uh, you know, his his deep and discerning comment. Uh, that was a time when he was in the middle of translating Machiavelli's Prince, uh, which he then published with with Yale and a great edition that that really captures the earthiness of the language of Machiavelli. And and he always would joke that that he kind of wrote a little bit like Yogi Berra spoke and, and intentionally would say things that were obscure or open to multiple interpretations. And a lot of the translations of the Prince would kind of clean that up, uh, make it better prose in some ways. But Dr. Cotavillo was wanting to stay near to the original intent and the ambiguity that was in, in the Prince originally. Uh, and then my second class with him was a seminar on de Gaulle. Of course, de Gaulle was the the subject of his dissertation um, back in his graduate school days. And then my third class with him was an independent, was an independent study that was connected with my dissertation. So on American political thought. So, you know, you've got somebody at, at the graduate level who is dealing with such a range of topics with such discernment and, and such ability to distill the essential point. I always thought that was the the feature in his, in his writing and speaking that was that was most front and center. He could always distill the essential point and he could be a merciless editor when you gave him something that you were writing, whether it was a graduate student essay or when we wrote a book 10 or so years ago, uh, he, you know, we, we passed it by him and you get, you get it back covered in red, right? As, as he cuts out all these extra phrases and words and right, tries to force you to, to clarify your thought by clarifying your words. 
Yeah, that's a part of the reality, right, of Cota Villa's focus on reality is realizing as a graduate student how much you don't know or how little you know and, yeah. and how much you need to become a better thinker, how much you need to become a better writer. And, uh, you know, that's not happening or it doesn't happen much in the academy today. I read a great essay that we need more uh, coaches uh, than, than philosophy professors. Uh, and, and what the article was trying to say is that we need coaches sometimes in the classroom who said, yeah, really, that sentence makes no sense. Or what are you trying to say here? Or what's your point? But we don't act that way as professors. We're like, well, you did a couple things right here, right? We never get to the point where give me 10 push-ups and, and Cota Villa very much <laughs> yeah. uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a teacher was like, this is bunk. You know, I, I can't believe it. And, and it, sometimes it'd be hard. You have to listen to that. Yeah. But he was right. And, and, and we needed to improve. And, and we needed that. that um, we needed those 10 push-ups. And I think um, to the degree that, you know, we've gotten better as thinkers and writers and teachers, uh, his, uh, his cold water uh, produced a, a lot of that. Yeah. And one of the things that was really something at, at BU was, you know, these, these classes were small and, and, and he was right there, right? I mean, it was, it was individual connections and attention and he was totally invested in your education. If there were three students in the class, he cared about every one of those students getting it and making the progress they needed to make on, on the clarity of their understanding, the clarity of their thought, you know, really a model for, for that kind of mentor professor relationship. Yeah. And I, I mentioned this before, but I mean, the first time I ever met him, no one wanted a TA for him. And, and I went in there and he was really interested in, in my interest in Machiavelli and Shakespeare and wanted to work with me, but he turned the conversation to something more important than Machiavelli and Shakespeare. He turned the conversation to where I was spiritually, where I was in my faith walk. Did I attend church? And I told him well, I'm not attending church. And he just got right to the point. This is this is perfect code of villa. Okay, so do you believe in God? Yes. Do you believe he's all powerful, all good, all knowing? Yeah, of course. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, Corbin, you believe all these things, but you can't find an hour a week to worship him. This is that's a perfect kind of example <laughs> yep. of Cotevilla's mind at work and his speech at work too, where he could have held back and been reticent and said, "Oh, okay," but he got right to the point because for him to know God was important, to him to love God was important, and if he had a person in front of him who he was just meeting who said that he knows God and believes in Him but couldn't find an hour to worship Him, he was going to point you in that direction. So uh, that, that was just the way he was uh, in, in everything. And I, I know it was hard. I mean, you and I kind of felt the, the brunt of this oftentimes, but um, a hard truth is something that's in short supply in the 21st century. And, and he definitely, um, uh, he spoke the language of hard truth, not because he wanted um, to put you down, but because he wanted to build you up. Yeah, it was hard truth, but it wasn't harsh truth. And it was, it was always with a smile. He had a great grin and just a great laugh, little chuckle, right? When, when something amused him, you see his eyes light up. And so, you know, you, you knew that he was with you. And, you know, in subsequent years, obviously, after we finished our graduate work, he was always ready to help with a recommendation or make a connection, introduce you to somebody, you know, to kind of build that relationship. He, he wanted you to succeed. Uh, you know, he had a certain vision probably for uh, the terms on which he would like to see us succeed. 
and he would help us in that direction. But he was always very supportive and interested as much in, in family life and, you know, those kind of relationships as he was in anything that was happening professionally for us. Yeah, very much so that, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think, and this, I mean, if you, if you wanted to sum his worldview up in a sentence or two, God gives us a certain amount of time uh, in this world, uh, and we ought to enjoy that time. Uh, that takes hard work. Uh, that takes uh, confronting reality uh, as it is. And that takes sometimes defending uh, the peace uh, that you're after. Uh, but at the end of it all, it's all about enjoying uh, a lasting peace that can only come uh, in a belief in, in God and, and in his eternal peace. So um, that that's where he is uh, right now. And uh, yep. I just think, you know, he's, he's at peace and uh, for, for a person, for a teacher, uh, for a public intellectual who wrote so much about war, about conflict, about tension to know that in his heart, what was most essential was to find that resting peace uh, is to really know Angelo Cotavilla. Well, thank you as always for joining us for this episode. And, you know, we hope we've been able to get a little bit of a sense of, of the great man and teacher and mentor that Dr. Cotavilla was, and we know his, his legacy will continue in his students and those who have read his, his work. We look forward to being back with you with a new episode next week.